But coming face to face with him isn't always what we expect. Jesus promised us that if we come face to face with him, we will experience his glory. But what does it mean to experience and encounter the glory of God? If you will turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 17. John's Gospel, chapter 17. We've been looking at this passage of Scripture for the last few weeks, and we have seen the various requests that the Lord Jesus Christ prays in this request. This prayer was prayed, we believe, in the temple courts the night before Jesus was to be crucified, and he prays a series of requests here for his disciples and for us. We've seen that if we align our lives with the request that he gives here, that we will move with the will of God and we can know the will of God because we literally see the will of God being prayed out in these requests. What does God want to do in our lives? We have seen him move here in praying that you and I will be one. We saw this last week where he prayed over and over again, Lord, would you make them one? Would you make them one? The one request in this prayer that he repeats constantly is, will you make them one? And the purpose of this oneness is so that the world can see the oneness that we share together as the body of Christ, and they will be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ and want to follow him. Now Jesus moves in this prayer, and he begins to pray for us to experience his glory. And the purpose, again, of us experiencing his glory is for us to, again, know oneness together. His glory forms and shapes us as one in the body of Christ. And then again, people are drawn to the Lord Jesus as their Savior. John's Gospel, we're going to look at verse chapter 17. We're going to begin with verse 22, and then we're going to go to verse 24. John's Gospel 17, verse 22. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Now notice what Jesus says here in the prayer. Go back to verse 22. The glory that you have given me, that the Father had given to Jesus, I have given to them, that is to his disciples, his followers. For what purpose? that they may be one even as we are one. So he gives us his glory for the purpose of creating and continuing this oneness that he prays about over and over again in this chapter. Now to verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. For what purpose? Why does Jesus want us to be with him? To see to experience. Anytime you see the word see, it means to experience, to see, to experience my glory that you have given to me because you love me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus is praying that we will see his glory, that we will experience his glory, and in so doing, we will know his love. So Jesus wants us to see his glory, to experience his glory. But what does it mean to experience the glory of God? What is the glory of God? In the Old Testament, the word glory meant this. And in the notes that you've got in your Rocky Mount connection, I've placed this in there. In the Old Testament, the word glory means to be heavy with riches, power, position, honor, and reputation. 
It was the idea that if you looked at someone and you said, that person's got glory, you were saying they were heavy, they were weighed down, they had a lot of reputation, honor, riches, or power. They stood out because of that. Another idea of the word glory in the Old Testament means that glory radiates from the one who has it and it leaves an impression behind. It radiates from the person who has it and it leaves an impression behind. Let me illustrate it this way. If you will look at the windows on either side of this worship center, the sun, the rays of the sun are radiating through the window panes which means it's leaving its impression. It's lighting it up. If you're in this room after dark, these windows are as dark as they can be. This room is, is you know, pitch black. But because the sun is radiating through the window panes, it is leaving an impression on those panes and in this room. It is also warming this room up as it radiates in here. And that's the idea in the Old Testament of the glory of God, that God's glory, anything that God's glory shines upon, moves upon, and impresses itself upon, leaves the impression. Anywhere the glory of God shows up, there's going to be an impression. The glory of God cannot touch anyone or anything and leave it the way that it was. The glory of God changes whatever and whoever it touches. Now, in the New Testament... The New Testament writers take the Old Testament concept of glory and they just expand upon it. In the New Testament, the word glory means honor, splendor, brightness, and the revealed presence of God. And the glory of God in the New Testament is often seen in the brilliance and the majesty of God's presence. If you recall when Jesus was transfigured, the glory of God was seen in him in splendid brightness and brilliance and majesty as the glory of God literally radiated out of his being. It is seen, the glory of God is seen in the healings that the Lord Jesus performed. It is seen in his character, in the basic goodness that he possessed. It is seen after the resurrection in the glory of his resurrection body, in the healing of that body, the power of that body, the ability of that resurrection body to do all kinds of things that the body prior to the resurrection is not able to do. The glory of God is seen in his resurrection body. And the glory of God in the future is seen in heaven and in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've talked about how the glory of God is seen in the Old Testament, how it is seen in the New Testament, and how it's seen in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus here is praying that we will see His glory, not just someday when we get to heaven, not just when He comes again, and not just in the past in His ministry. Often when we think and we talk about the glory of God, we talk about it in the past, what we see on the pages of Scripture, or we talk about it, what it's going to be like someday when we get to heaven or when Jesus comes again. But we don't live in any expectation that the glory of God is going to be known and experienced right now. But what Jesus is praying for here is not just for past glory or for the experience of future glory. He is praying for us to know the glory of God right here now in this life. That's what he was praying for his disciples. It's not just as the old timers used to joke, a pie in the sky and a sweet by and by. He wants us to know his glory right now. So how can you and I know and experience every day the glory of God in our lives? How can we know the glory of God today? How does God set you up and work in your life to prepare you to experience his glory 
in all these common, ordinary days that we have. You see, I think sometimes when we look at the glory of God, we expect that, man, if I'm going to know the glory of God, I've got to have these great experiences. There's got to be fireworks going off around me. It's got to be some who get all kinds of hits, you know, on the Internet that I could post this on YouTube and everybody would be anxious to see it, et cetera, et cetera. Or I get more, more and more friends on Facebook if I could just put on there all my experiences of the glory of God. And a lot of times we tend to look at sensational stuff on television, you know, that supposedly purports the glory of God and say, well, that's got to be the glory of God. But we don't really see or think that we experience any of God's glory day to day. But that's exactly what Jesus wants us to experience, His glory. So how and where do we experience His glory? Now let me give you, before we get into this, one word of caution. Where you and I experience the glory of God is chances are where we're not expecting to experience the glory of God. Where we see the glory of God show up is not where we usually anticipate the glory of God to show up. Because we're going to start at the cross. The glory of God, we start at the cross which is probably the last place that we would anticipate seeing and experiencing the glory of God at the cross. John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 23. John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 23. The Lord Jesus spoke these words the last week of His life in anticipation of the cross. Notice what He says. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus is saying that this hour when He is going to be glorified is the hour of His crucifixion. Verse 24, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus says, the hour has come. I'm going to be glorified. He didn't say, I'm going to be crucified. He didn't say, this is going to be the worst hour of my life. He says, the hour has come for me to be glorified. He's going to be glorified in the crucifixion on the cross. Jesus says, if you take a a seed and you let that seed go into the ground, what's going to happen to that seed? That seed's going to die. It's going to die in the ground. But its death in the ground lays the potential, the possibility that you've got a tremendous harvest that's going to happen, but you can't have the harvest until you have the death of the seed first. So what is He trying to say to us? Jesus said you and I are to do what? We are to pick up our cross. You see, the glory that God has for us, that Jesus is praying for us, takes place when you and I die to ourselves. When he takes us through periods of suffering, the concept of the cross and the concept and understanding of suffering went hand in hand in the ancient world. Now, we have a hard time with that because in our culture today, 
We take the cross and what do we do with it? We put it on top of our steeples. We put it on our platforms. We wear jewelry around our neck with the cross on it. And and we make the cross look really nice and really inviting. The ancient world would have understood the cross as synonymous with suffering. It was the worst form of execution that the Romans had been able to come up with. It was like if you were walking around with an electric chair hanging around your neck. Now, nobody in his right mind would do that. But that was the concept of the cross. It spoke of tremendous suffering. And Jesus is saying, the hour has come that I'm going to be glorified. But when am I going to be glorified? I'm going to be glorified in the midst of... Of the cross. In the midst of suffering is where I'm going to be glorified. And God takes suffering in our lives and He uses it to accomplish several things. At the place of suffering, what can happen? What does He want to happen? How is His glory known at the place of suffering? Well, first of all, His glory is known at the place of our suffering and in suffering because in suffering we have the potential to have oneness with Jesus. We can come closer to Jesus and have the potential to be closer to Jesus in the place of suffering. In the place of suffering, he walks with us. He paces with us. He even sits and groans with us in the place of suffering. There is in that place of suffering a oneness that we can know with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that oneness with Him, in that closeness with Him, and that being intertwined with Him is where we experience His glory. It is in the place of sufferance that we know the glory of perseverance. I'm staying with Jesus. I'm going the distance with Jesus. And the reason I'm staying with Jesus and going the distance with Jesus is not because he's making it easy, not because he's making it nice, not because I get up every morning and there are blessings just all over the place and I dance through them. It's because I love him. It isn't because of what he's doing for me. It's because now what I can do for him. I love him. I want to stick with him. I want to go the distance with him. I'm not into him entertaining me, and that's why I'm staying with him. It's because I love him. I love him more and more with more of who I am. And it's that perseverance that I'm going to stick with him. And suffering has the potential to produce that in us. It's the glory of learning to love people who hate us abuse us and reject us. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he looked at the people who were hating him, abusing him, rejecting him, and what did he do? He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He realized that as he hung there dying for the very people who were spitting in his face, that the blood that was flowing out of his body was to cleanse them, deliver them, set them free. See, that was the glory of his hour. And what he does in the place of suffering is he says, I'll teach you how to forgive. I'll teach you how not to be in bondage to the people who victimize you and abuse you. I will set you free, and in that forgiveness, you will know my glory. You see, when Jesus was suffering, when you and I suffer for him, Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. We die to selfishness, and in dying to selfishness, we trust him more. In dying to selfishness, we trust him more. Remember what Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. In that place of suffering, he trusted his own spirit to the Father. It was at the place of suffering on the cross that Jesus saw through the experience of the cross to the resurrection. 
Bible says over in the book of Hebrews that he endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. Now, I want you to follow me on this. As he hung on the cross, suffering and dying, he looked forward and he saw the resurrection. He looked forward and he anticipated like never before his rising from the dead, the victory that was coming what he was going to be able to do with what he had done on the cross. You see, it took the suffering of the cross to bring to full fruition in him the joy, the anticipation of the resurrection. Folks, in our lives, if we will allow God, he will take suffering and make the reality of the resurrection Stronger and greater than it has ever been in our lives. I really, about 10 years ago, began to place the resurrection into my preaching on a regular basis. Some of you all have noticed of late I seem to preach on it every Sunday. And the reason is this. When I first went in the ministry, I used to preach on the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Everybody preaches on Easter Sunday and we celebrate. And I began to realize something as the years rolled by and I was dealing with stuff in my own life and I was dealing with suffering in the lives of the people that I was pastoring. I needed the resurrection and the reality of it more than one Sunday a year. I needed it 52 Sundays a year. We need it 365 days a year. And you see, God takes you through that time of suffering to say, listen... While you're in the midst of the suffering, I want you to look forward. It's not suffering for the sake of suffering. Suffering in and of itself does not contain something special in it. It's the glory of God in the suffering. Don't get caught up in the suffering. Get caught up in the glory of God in the suffering and the potential that you look through the suffering and in the suffering to have a need to see the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not just as an event in history, but the reality of His resurrection for my life. I need His life. I need His power. I need His resurrection presence in my life every day. I need the victory of the resurrection that I can live in and walk in. I need the presence of Jesus as the resurrected, victorious Son of God in my life every day. As someone has said about suffering, it can either make you bitter or better, and it's our choice to make. So the glory of God can be experienced in the cross and suffering. Secondly, the glory of God can be experienced, and he wants us to experience the inner transformation. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. And we all, with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, what's he talking about with the unveiled face? What Paul is referencing there is Moses. Moses asked to see the glory of God. And God was more than happy to accommodate Moses. But Moses would go into the presence of God and commune with God and talk with God. And when he came out, his face was shining so much that he had to put a veil over his face because people couldn't stand to look into Moses' face because the glory of God was radiating him. So he had that veiled face. Now what Paul says here is that all of us with an unveiled face are beholding the glory of God. And in the process of beholding the glory of God... We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. He's saying, take off the veil. I want everybody to see the glory of God on your face. And he says, the glory of God is going to transform you. Now, the Greek word that is translated 
transformed there is the word from which we get our English word metamorphosis. It is the idea of like of a caterpillar morphing into a butterfly. Even so, he is changing us to be like what? To be like Jesus. So the glory of God is seen in our lives as we begin to think like Jesus, act like Jesus, value people like Jesus values people. Our whole characteristics of our lives are like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the glory of the transformation. Now, when does this take place? What does this trans- transformation take place in our lives? When you and I carefully, deliberately, consistently, habitually read His Word and study His Word and apply His Word to our lives, He is transforming us. The purpose of reading the Word of God every day is not to check off something on my list and say that I did it. The purpose of reading the Word every day is to be transformed to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. To think like Him, to act like Him, to love like Him, to know His power. It is to receive and I experience His glory over the pages of His Word. Prayer. Prayer is a place for you and I to experience the glory of God and to look into the glory of God. And so many folks say, well, I don't know how to pray. That is the greatest place in the world to be with prayer when you don't know what to say. Because when you and I do not know what to say in prayer, that's when we open ourselves to let him teach us how to pray, to guide us in the prayer, to walk us through the prayer, to see his glory in the prayer. So when you and I go to pray, don't worry about whether you got all kinds of nice stuff to say to him in prayer. Just say, Lord, would you teach me how to pray? Would you guide me through the praying? Would you take me? through this prayer time. And God will begin to show you His glory as you move with Him in prayer. Prayer and the Word are two of the key places that He does this transforming into His glory. Now, what is He preparing you for? He's preparing you as you see His glory to experience His glory in a specific place in your life. Now, He's preparing you to experience His glory in every aspect, but I want to identify one particular place that sooner or later all of us end up in. It's the place of the silence of God. It's the place of feeling or tempted to feel abandoned by God. If you follow the Lord and you serve the Lord long enough, you're going to have some places that you feel like God is silent in some seasons when you feel like God has abandoned you. And often those are times and seasons when you feel like God most needs to show up and speak and act. God, why are you silent? God, why are you not speaking? God, why does it feel like you have abandoned me? If there was ever a time in my life that I needed to hear from you, it is right now. If there is ever a time in my life that I needed to know your activity, it's right now. But it feels like you have abandoned me. On the cross at the end of the crucifixion, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father forsook the Son on the cross so he would never forsake you and I. And part of the transformation that God works in our lives 
is that when we were at the place of feeling like we are alone and that God's not listening, that He is silent and that He has abandoned us, that we come to experience the glory of God in the dark places of life. That we come to experience the glory of God in the dark places of life. That we come to know His presence, not because we're feeling it, but because we are walking in His promises. And let me say this to you. Just because you and I don't feel His presence doesn't mean He's not there. Just because we don't see His presence doesn't mean He's not there. And just because God isn't talking doesn't mean He is not there. In fact, God's greatest presence with us is often when He's quiet. I've used the illustration before, but my dad and I, when I was a little boy, we used to go to this campground, and we would go down by with the rest of the guys and their dads who were at this campground, and on Saturday night we'd have this big bonfire and so forth, and then we would turn to go back to the cabin. And when we would leave to go back into the cabin, we would leave the warmth of the bonfire and the joy of all the company there, and we'd have to go up into the woods. And as we would go up into the woods, it got dark and it got cold, and the bonfire seemed so far behind and so far away, and the darkness just seemed to envelop us. And I would get scared as a five- and six- and seven-year-old kid as we would go deeper into those woods, and it got colder and it got darker But then my fear would be relieved, not because the lights came on, but because I felt my dad's hand in my hand. Dad didn't say anything to me. It was just that I knew he was there. And folks, the the glory of God is not that God turns the lights on all the time. It's that he will take your hand in that dark hour and he may not say anything to you, but his presence is enough. His presence is enough. And you will know His glory in the dark place. He moves on. I want to move on. The glory of God is known in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The glory of God is known in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, in His gifts, in His fruits, in His teaching, in His empowering. We are going through a study right now on the gifts of the Spirit on Wednesday night. Study notes in the booklets are available over here. Following Easter, beginning on Easter Sunday, we are going to give you a devotional book called The Apostles' Code by O.S. Hawkins. And it is 40 days of devotions on the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit that will stretch from Easter Sunday to what's called Pentecost Sunday in June where we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it is to help you get in touch with the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. But I want for a moment to speak on the ministry and the glory of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the corporate sense. We talk about it all the time in the terms of you and I having gifts of the Spirit and outpourings of the Spirit and that kind of thing in our lives and the Spirit of God equipping us. But God doesn't just want to work in us as individuals. He wants to pour out His Spirit in a corporate way. 
And throughout the history of the church, and I don't just mean Rocky Mount Church, I mean the history of his church over the last 2,000 years, there have been periods of time when God has poured out his spirit in a corporate way and touched the lives of tons of people. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. In the 1700s, prior to the Revolutionary War, it began in New England. There was what was called the First Great Awakening. And then it was followed some years later by the Second Great Awakening. And the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening were about literally thousands of churches and thousands upon tens of thousands of Christians that began to seek the face of God and begin to cry out to God. And thousands of people came to know Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. It started in New England and it began to move its way down through the colonies till it got to North Carolina. And there were two guys, Daniel Marshall and Shubal Stearns, that went to a little rural church in North Carolina and started, rather I should say, a little church down there by a creek. And they began to share and they began to preach the gospel. And from that little church called Sandy Creek Baptist Church, God began to break out and move in revival. And they began to move out from that church. And they planted churches all across North Carolina, South Carolina. And then they went north up into Virginia. If you go to North Carolina today, you'll go about every five miles you go, you see a Baptist church. Have you ever noticed that when you go to North Carolina? Most of those churches date their history and find their lineage back to Sandy Creek Baptist Church because people poured out of that church with a passion to start churches and tell people about Jesus Christ as the result of the second great awakening. Now let's bring it closer to home. In the 1960s, about 70 miles from here, at a church called Thomas Road Baptist Church that was just beginning to come on the scene they begin to pray and they begin to seek the face of God at that church. And they begin to ask God, would you do a work? Would you pour out your spirit? Would you help us to reach Lynchburg, Virginia for Jesus Christ in any way that we could? And Thomas Road Baptist Church in the 1960s literally began to explode. They had a harvest day where they had over 10,000 people in attendance. Dr. Falwell, who was the pastor of that church, used to tell us, he said, if you want to see the secret of Thomas Road, come here on Sunday nights at 5 o'clock to the prayer room because we get together every Sunday at 5 o'clock and for an hour we pray over this church. And that church began to grow and it began to reach people. And from that experience of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God in the 1960s, in 1971, Liberty University was born. But it was born out of revival. It was born out of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And God has used Thomas Road through liberty to plant churches all across the world. But where did it start? It started in an outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. And what I'm trying to say to you this morning is that God wants His church to see His glory. But he doesn't just want one church to see his glory. He wants to pour the Spirit out so that it multiplies out of his churches and through his churches and out the door of his churches to where it's touching and drawing people to himself. And one of the reasons I'm preaching this this morning and I've been praying this week, God, would you put it in our hearts? Would you please touch at least one person at Rocky Mount Sunday morning who will say, God, I want to see an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. I want to see you do this work again. 
God, would you do it? I'm sick of the sin. I'm sick of what I see my nation going through right now. I want to ask for a holy outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God that God would make us thirsty and yearning to see that happen. That's all it requires. Lord, would you create it in me? Would you create that thirst within me? Finally, we see the glory of God in heaven. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship, our membership is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. First of all, notice he says our citizenship is in heaven. We may be citizens of this earth and this country, but that's just temporal. Our eternal citizenship, membership, place of belonging is in heaven. And he says that from heaven we await the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's Jesus going to do with these bodies? Now, if you haven't noticed about your body, these bodies wear down after a while. And they get weak, and they get sickly, and they've got limitations to them. And someday they're going to die. So he says what he's going to do is he's going to transform these bodies to be like the resurrection body of his son. Now, if you look at the resurrection body of Jesus, it was perfect. It wasn't subject to illness, wasn't subject to death, wasn't subject to limitations. And his resurrection body was perfectly fitted for what God had for him to do. So what is he saying Jesus is going to do to us? He's saying we're going to exchange this body. It's going to be transformed to one like the resurrection body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the body that we're going to have when we are in his presence is going to be one that is not subject to illness, not subject to death, not subject to limitations. So if you look at your body and it's wearing out and it's screwing up and it's messing up and you're just frustrated with it, well, don't spaz out too bad because it's temporary, okay? you got an eternal one coming that is going to be like the resurrection body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he has for us for eternity. But the greatest thing about the, that body is not that it's not subject to death and, and, and other limitations, the greatest thing about that body is that it is perfectly suited to carry out everything he's got for us to do in his presence for eternity. And the biggest thing that body is going to be suited out to do is worship him. Is worship him. You know something? When I sing here on Sunday mornings, it has been requested of me that I turn my microphone off. I've even had Sundays that I'm out here just belting it out and I get a word from the sound booth. Please turn your microphone off. When I get to heaven someday, God's going to give me the male version of Valshara's voice. And I'm going to just be able to sing my heart out. <laughs> because my body's going to be totally suited to worship Him. That's what He's got in store for us. Let me share the words of a song called No More Night. See over there, there's a mansion, oh, that's prepared just for me where I will live with my Savior eternally. And there will be no more night, no more pain, no more tears, never crying again. And praises to 
the great I am, we will live in the light of the risen Lamb. Let's pray.